make sure this guy's going. Okay, uh, <clears throat> well, thanks for having me. Um, let me give you just, I'll give you a little bit briefly about my background, um, just so you know kind of where I'm coming from, and then um, I'll dive in. I'm not gonna, I'm gonna try to make it not like super clinical <laughs> and like heavy, but a little bit. I, I just think there's so much out there about autism and autism-related disorders. There's a lot of stereotypes, there's a lot of misinformation, and, and then also, a, a, it's kind of, I think, for a lot of us, we're a bit at a, at a loss, especially like if you happen to have a coworker who maybe falls on the spectrum, kind of what, what do you do and how do you, how do you relate to that person? And so I um, wanna talk about all that stuff. But so um, I really got involved with this population when I was in graduate school, right before graduate school actually. And I started doing in-home therapy um, with kids there is a company, it was, it was out of, uh, off the East Coast, that basically did behavioral therapy with children that have autism. So they'd set up a home team, there'd be a handful of us therapists and we'd take shifts and we'd be doing therapy. And so I did that for a decade. And then also with one specific child, I also was his school aide. And so I also got to get into the school system and learn about things like IEPs, which are no fun. And <laughs> all those great things, which I see a lot of heads nodding. So probably you guys are very familiar. Um, and so, yeah, so that was kind of the beginning. And that really got me hands on really, 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 really learning behavioral therapy and treatment goals and planning and how to determine mastery criteria when you've got a skill you know that's been mastered and then moving on and then i started working for agapi and a lot of the kids that would come in kids and adolescents and and more adults too that fell on the spectrum would come to me so i started seeing kind of across the lifespan you know how how it changes um and how the needs change um, and so that's a little bit about my background um as, as far as how this population kind of came to get so involved and interested in. Um, so let me ask you a couple of questions first. How many of you have someone in your family who has been, okay, diagnosed with something on the autism spectrum? Okay, how many people just know someone? That's, okay, so yeah, all right. So, okay, I'm speaking in general terms, <laughs> okay? So know that some of the stuff that I say may or may not apply to the people you know that you know. Um, let me ask this too. Was there anything that you guys wanted to make sure, I know this is kind of a little bit of a very specific topic, but anything that you guys wanted to make sure I covered today or talked about? Any specific questions? Anything like that? Um, I would just like any kind of, any advice on how not to trigger somebody on the, I feel like I've been responsible for tr triggering one of my nephews. Okay. If, if there's any, if, if you have any advice on that. Okay, that's a good question, okay. Anybody else, anything specific before I get started? Because I wanna make sure I get to it. No? Okay, all right, so feel free to ask questions along the way if you want to, but uh, I wanna start with kind of what, what makes up this diagnosis. When we say that somebody has autism, what are the things that probably are going on that would make us say this is what this is versus this thing over here versus ADHD versus something else? Um, so one of the criteria that this is according to the DSM, which is kind of like the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual Mental Health Disorders, big fancy name for it's like the Bible in psychology basically that says if you're going to have something that has a diagnosis, here's the symptoms that you have to have. So one of the big guys is there has to be a deficit in social communication and social interaction. Okay, and so w the way that this looks, 
it, this is not somebody that just has poor social skills or somebody that's just kind of awkward um, because I think a lot of times there's that's one of the ways that it gets a little bit confusing and, and sometimes a little bit gray um, but one of the I'll, I'll kind of go through the parts of what makes up the, the social interaction struggles that we see. One is reciprocity, the back and the forth. I talk, you talk, you ask me a question, I ask you a question, you know, we respond, laugh at the same joke. The back and forth that happens with social interactions, this is a struggle for people that fall on the spectrum. Um, and it may be that they have an, the social approach when they approach a person's kind of off. Um, it may be that conversation is very difficult to flow. It gets kind of stilted and, or it just breaks off. You have no idea why. Um, there's not as much of the sharing of interest that goes back and forth. You know, I really like this movie. Oh, wow, I saw that movie. I really like that movie too. It does that, that, that natural flow doesn't really happen. Um, and then also, not necessarily um, people on the spectrum, they have a hard time with initiation of the back and the forth. Um, sometimes they don't respond because they don't realize that you've put something out there for them to respond to. Um, so that's a big one. Another way that this shows up for them is nonverbal communication. That's really difficult for people on the spectrum. Um, a lot of times you'll see that they have a hard time integrating what is the nonverbal along with their verbal. Um, and so you might see someone who's talking about something that gets them really excited, that they're very passionate about, but a very flat, monotone voice that doesn't really change very much over time, and it just kind of stays right here. And, and, it, and, and it, there's just, it doesn't integrate well. And so you can't really tell necessarily what, based on tone of voice, facial gestures, hand gestures, what really is being communicated the same way that people who are neurotypical use nonverbal language. Um, eye contact is difficult for them. Um, one of the things that when, I, when I'm working with these guys, I teach them just because eye contact seems to be such a part of our language with each other is look right there. <laughs> if eye contact is too much, just look right there in the center of the forehead and it imitates eye contact <laughs> even though it's not really eye contact. Um, I mentioned gestures, you know, a lot of times um, people on the spectrum, they just have very limited use of their body when they're talking nodding, head, you know, all of these things that we do, we move a lot usually, especially me, so I'm sorry for that, I'm very gestury, but um, don't really see that much. Um, also, as far as what we call affect, just the expression of a feeling usually is pretty flat uh, for people on the spectrum, so you don't see a lot by way of just that emotional expression. Um, Another thing that happens for the nonverbal too is not only do they have a hard time sometimes putting that into their language, they also have a hard time understanding it from other people. And so they might misinterpret things, misinterpret cues, um, misinterpret somebody else's facial expression. Um, that can be very difficult as well. Um, another one of the kind of telltale signs is having a hard time basically just developing and maintaining relationships. This, this is really tough uh, for people on the spectrum. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're not interested, although sometimes that is a part of it. There's just a low level of interest and it just is not the thing that shows up on their radar or something that they really want to invest time in. Other times, people are very interested in having relationships and intimacies with people, just don't know how to go about doing it. Um, you know, one of the things 
most people who are kind of neurotypical do pretty well is adapt to the social environment depending on what is needed. If you need to whisper, you whisper. Um, if you need to speak up, you speak up. If you, depending on what the environment is. And, and um, people on the spectrum, especially people that are a little bit more severe, have a hard time with that adjustment, which makes relationships hard because they can seem awkward, um, makes them stand out, and people don't really know how to respond to that. Um, when these, these kiddos are little, one of the things that shows up is that their play looks a little different. Um, you know, usually there's kind of, as we develop, we have our play changes. You know, when we very first, we're very exploratory in our play with an item, and then we move on to maybe um, imitative play. We imitate what somebody else is doing, all the way up to interactive play. I'll like make my hero, you know, shoot your hero, and you sweep in and save that guy over there, and, and there's the talking and pretending, and that play looks very different for people on the spectrum. Sometimes the things like the um, imaginative play is just not even there at all. Um, the, again, that reciprocity between items, you know, me talking to this guy and that guy talking to that guy, a lot of times is not there. Um, and so you'll see things like maybe play looks like lining up items in a certain way or turning something upside down and playing with the undercarriage of a car or um, spinning something over and over and over again. Um, and so play just looks really different. Um, and a lot of these guys, when they're little, you'll see they'll be in a room full of kids and everybody's over there pretending and putting on hats and doing all this stuff. And they'll be over there kind of to themselves, just playing with their own items, usually a, a, a pretty limited amount of activity with it. Um, and so that, even just that, part of play, how much that influences relationship development, even at a very, very young age, kind of gets hit for people that fall on the spectrum. Um, so, so that social interaction is a big piece. That's one of the big pieces we look at. If, and again, this is way beyond just somebody being kind of awkward or not having good social skills or um, not being comfortable with, social, I mean, with eye contact because they're shy. Um, this, is, this is a much more extreme um, presentation of the social stuff. And then another thing that we look at is what, um, it's these patterns of behavior um, that can be restrictive, they can be repetitive, um, and this is another big thing that we look at. And if we don't see it, it's like, well, it may not be autism, it, it, may, it may be something else. And the way it shows up, um, <clears throat> one is like a repetitive use of either movements or speech, and so, um, Things like I mentioned, kind of lining up toys over and over and over again, or um, a thing called echolalia, which is where um, a person repeats either a word or phrases. Um, like I have one little guy right now that I'm working with, and every single time he'll say something out loud, he'll sit and whisper it to himself over again. And so he'll say, you know, I went to the store yesterday, I went to the store yesterday. And it's just this, it's like just a repeat that has to happen. Um, it can even look like stuttering sometimes, e even though that's not what it is. Um, but that's kind of that. I'm just sitting there thinking there, there's another an adult male that I have that has a lot of trouble with this. And so for him, getting out a whole sentence, he knows the beginning and the end, but it takes him a good little bit of time because there's so much echoing throughout the sentence that he has to do to feel like he can get it out. Um, 
sometimes very idiosyncratic phrases, just odd phrases. Um, I had one little guy, he would, um, he would catch on a little phrase from a movie and he would just say it often, even if it didn't fit <laughs> you know, with the rest of the things that he was trying to say. And then he'd throw in his little phrase at the end. And, and it seems odd, but it's just this kind of repetitive thing. And, and we, you know, it's obviously it's a brain thing um, about, and, and there's some theories out there. I'll talk about that too. But um, another thing is, uh, it's called flapping, uh, where sometimes you see um, they get very excited. Um, a lot of times, especially little kiddos, they'll maybe hop while they flap, and that's their way of kind of showing their excitement or their passion about something. And for someone that doesn't understand what that is, it can look, again, it can look odd or maybe be misinterpreted, but it's, it's just one of those repetitive things that happens. Um, a lot of times I have ones that will do, um, it's almost like a puppet, puppeteering kind of thing, all to the side out of their peripheral vision. Um, but again, it's just uh, one of those repetitive, stereotypical kind of movements that, that we see. Um, Another th the way that this comes up, that repetitiveness, the patterns of behavior, is just this really strict adherence to routine um, and things being the same. Sameness is a, is a really big deal. Um, a lot of people on the spectrum have a very hard time with transitions and it changes in routine. So like if you take a different route on the way home, you talk about a trigger. Whew, that can be a trigger, especially for little guys. Um, like, tons of stories about it's like time we're going home from school and mom needs to run by the grocery store real quick <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't usually work very well and um, again depending on, on on the severity and again I'm talking general terms so the people that you guys know in your life it may look very very different for them so keep that in mind but um, that definitely can be a trigger um, being very very distressed over a very small change like something being changed in their room maybe would set off a really big response because they just like that pattern a lot of people on the spectrum i know have the same diet every day every lunch uh, breakfast lunch dinner all same foods every day they never get sick of it i would get so sick of some you know chicken fingers oh it's a lot of chicken fingers <laughs> you know um, but that just that that sameness and that repetition it just works well for them and, and they can get really upset um, when it's not there. Also, you see a lot of rigid thinking um, sometimes with people on the spectrum. Um, very, it's black or it's white. Um, it has to be just this way. Again, just a rigidity. That, that flexibility of thinking, flexibility in general, it's just difficult um, for, for people that fall on the spectrum. Um, sometimes you'll see things like they have certain rituals of either greeting or when they leave a person, they say the same phrase in the same way, kind of over and over again. Again, it's just a ritual, repetitious kind of thing. Um, another way that this shows up is um, uh, it's, it's common. I, I won't say, I, I, I see a good mix of this actually, but very common for people on the spectrum to have a very restricted, specific interest or kind of group of interest. Um, and it's, and it's kind of abnormal in its intensity. Uh, one example is um, one guy I worked with, his was toilets. I mean, he knew everything there was to know about toilets and toilet manufacturing. He was fascinated by it. I mean, could tell me stuff like I didn't even, I've never even thought about like 
how you make a toilet, you know, and he could tell, I mean, and just in the, the amount of knowledge that he had and the intensity with the focus. And so when he walked into a place, well, he went to go check out the toilet because that was his area of interest. A lot of people would consider that very odd, you know, and so it had a hard time relating to him because of it, but that was just his thing. He just loved it. And so a lot of times interest, it is a little, it's maybe, um, a little alternative or, or a little less common. You know, some of the big things are you know, that I see a lot are dragons, uh, things like uh, dragons, dinosaurs, dragons, trains, trains, trains. Yes, trains. Thomas. Oh boy, Thomas the train engine. Yeah, tank engine. He he's a big guy. Um, is that one you've seen? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> It's they're like, and when they get their interest, man, they can be like an encyclopedia and just know so much stuff. And of course, they want to tell you that, and that's where it gets back into that social communication part. A lot of times, it's like you're being talked at rather than with, and so they'll tell you their stuff, and you're like, "That's really cool." Well, um, you know, I, I saw, I, I grew up on a farm. That's great. So it takes this much time to plow that, you know, and it's like right back, I'm going to tell you what I need to tell you about my thing. And so that's where, again, that back and forth of, of communicating. But yeah, that, that's a good one. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm aware that maybe some of them have not had much exposure to people on autism spectrum, but the media has characters. All of the movies, that's TV right. programs, Sheldon Cooper. Sheldon is a big one. They never identify him as being, if you've seen that show, The Big Bang Theory, the movie, The Accountant. Uh, Rain Man, that mm -hmm. movie with Dustin Hoffman. I mean, there's a bunch of them like that. Mm -hmm. The Good Doctor. In the middle, mm -hmm. the, the youngest child does the echolalia thing, right? Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's it's out there and it's sort of a known thing, but the good thing about that to me is that it makes, it, it increases awareness, but it also might lead to people thinking that everyone on the spectrum is just like that, which is not the case. Right. No. Yes. Um, Yes. Because I, um, so I, I sometimes wonder like fives specifically have a lot of these, and, and, and I'm not a doctor at all. But I would I love wonder, the research. To my knowledge, nobody's done the research yet, but that's my thing I too. I wonder. Fives oh yeah. And Asperger's, like how do you know someone just not a very healthy five versus light Asperger's, or is it? That's difficult. I would say a lot of testing <laughs> would be my. I mean, the way to get to that answer for me would be it would be a lot of. A lot of questioning and a lot especially developmental histories and things like that and um, yeah that that yeah I, I think the research would pan out if anybody were to sit down and do a study on it it would show a high correlation between people falling on the spectrum and being a five yeah on the Enneagram yes sort of an unrelated question but I have a nephew who is uh, pretty far on the autism spectrum and he doesn't really talk, he talks but really and so it's going to be a lifelong thing for my sister-in-law and her husband. And so, like, what can we do to make it easier for them when we visit? Or they don't really visit us, but we visit them. You know, what can, what can we be sensitive to that we might not be thinking about? That's a good question. Kind of like with yours, the triggers, you know, like what, yeah. Um, one thing I would say is ask them that question. And probably you, you might have already, but they, they probably would have a list of things. Um, maybe uh, I think of like the controlling the sensory mm -hmm. part of your home. 
the lights, the sounds, um, textiles, the, the textures of things, um, uh, foods. A lot of times there's some sensitivities to things like certain smells and certain, um, a lot, it smells is a big one because usually people that have an aversion to a taste are just not going to eat it and so it's okay. But it might be that you change your menu some or making sure that you know some of the foods that you know that your nephew really enjoys is stocked so they don't have to bring three grocery bags with them when they go because a lot of times that's a big thing. They have to bring all their food with them. Okay. For those reasons, yeah, it's so complicated trying to travel. Well, and it's going to be hard probably given that he is a little bit more severe, it's going to be hard for him to transition to a new place. That's part of the changes of routine. It's just very difficult for them. And so a lot of times you see a lot of arousal, like, and it might be temper tantrum or it might be high anxiety. That's just really hard for them to cope with. And so it makes sense that they would kind of, y'all come over to our house <laughs> instead. He can go be in his cave. He's probably at a cave, I'm guessing. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, those, those would be the short things. I would think about that. I would also think about just kind of how you manage the time and maybe having a schedule for him. A lot of times that helps um, for, for people on the spectrum is having, knowing every single hour what's gonna happen so it's predictable and it kind of can ha help with the transition piece um, that making sure that he's got a kind of place he can go to by himself and decompress, kind of like a safe zone where he can just go be alone. Maybe it's quiet, yeah, it's dark. Okay. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. So they're really, they're really fighting for him. Yeah. Yeah. Does that help some? Yeah. No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Was there um, my best friend's little boy has autism, and you know, you always thought I have a little boy and she has a little boy, and I thought we would always, you know, I thought we would kind of, but our schedules are different and our lives are different, so we don't get to see each other as much, but. It's how do you like how can I help my little boy engage her little boy? Like, I don't even know how to. How old is your? He's almost six. He's almost and her six. Little boy is almost just turned seven. I just wonder how you know how how he can you know because you want to be sensitive to him, but I feel like right now it just doesn't even that that they don't even co-mingle because they don't go to the same schools. It's hard. But I would love to integrate my son with her son. I think I think it's teaching is a big part teaching your son kind of how that while this play date is important it might look a bit different than some of his other play dates uh, and kind of help arm him for some of the ways that maybe um, because again it's it it's the it in, in the relationships and this is one of the things I was going to talk about too even with like people that you know that are adults the person who can be more flexible often is the one that is required to be more flexible. The one who does not have that, it's hard for them to, again, kind of change to be what is needed to match. And so the person who is more flexible tends to be more flexible <laughs> about, we're going to play with the toys you want to play with, and we're going to talk about the things you want to talk about. You get to pick the movie. And, you know, so in some ways it's a very, it's, it's, the, the self and the ego kind of has to take a little bit of a backseat and just be a little bit more flexible in let's do it the way you want to do it and and know that it may not be heavy on conversation and it and it may not be you know and I think you could you you could teach your son that and kind of arm him with some skills like this is going to look a little different probably which is totally okay he's a great dude it's just going to look a little different on your play date and so it might be if you want to be the one picking the game especially for little guys you know that's such a big deal it's my way, I want to do it, you know. Um, 
maybe letting him know we're going to have another play date where he can do that and he can he can get a little bit more of um, kind of his say, you know, in, in the way things go. And again, it depends on um, the how uh, severe your your friends, right? But I will tell you that with the kids, um, part of when I was doing the school stuff, I would um, <laughs> I would I would figure out kids to do play dates with one of my guys. And the kids loved it. They just loved it. They loved, and, and it might be that, you know, your, your, your friend kind of hangs out with them and helps, and in, in that might be that you guys are a part of the play group too, just to kind of help, because it's such a ripe environment for teaching social skills. Um, and the kids that would come over, they just loved it. They, they thought it was the sweetest thing, because they knew it was different. They knew it was a different version of a play date than maybe what they had had with some kid down the street. But it also made them feel good, and they, they, they liked all the, just kind of the interaction, and it, it, was, it was really sweet. And so um, my guess is, is your son would probably have a similar response. Like he would be like, that was really cool. You know, even though it was different, and, but if you can kind of prep him for it, I think that probably. And prep him for it to be respectful, that it's not that there's, you know, he's, I don't know, six. Like right. Of, like, them understanding that the, the abnormality is, is something that's precious. Yeah. Still. Yeah, it's just his brain sees things differently. Mm -hmm, absolutely. That's really cool though, that you're thinking of that. Because that, I think that's one of the things that just as a society and whole, and, and just in general with people and mental health, you know, special needs, it's like, it, it's hard to know how, how do I, a lot of us have the desire, you know, to kind of blend, but how, how do I do it? And, and do it in a way that's not demeaning or disrespectful or, um, and so I think to me, a big answer is it starts with our kiddos you know, helping teach them and it becoming just a part of their normal, oh yeah, yeah it's nothing. And, and, and it's, um, they, they just seem to, I don't know, they just go with it, it seems like. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Y'all are asking good questions. Um, so another thing that shows up, I wanna talk about this too, is I mentioned the sensory thing. Um, this is a big deal too, especially for people who are interacting, because this is where a lot of times triggers do show up. Um, there is a, a lot of times for people on the spectrum, there is um, a lot of sensory stuff that goes with it, including things like um, hypersensitivity, hypersensitivity, like where things come in too much, but also an undersensitivity, hypo, where it comes in hardly at all, like pain, um, <clears throat> temperature. Um, you, you, it might be, we'd be out there like icicles dropping off our face and maybe somebody on the spectrum is out there in a t-shirt and shorts and they are fine. They don't feel anything, you know, and um, same thing, they, a lot of times pain sensation comes in differently for them. And so it might be that there is a significant injury that would have us on the ground writhing in pain and they're just going on with their day because it's just not coming in the same. Um, same thing with sounds. I know one little guy, um, he was... I don't know how many, let's say two football. No, that's too much. Even, like he was in a classroom and the cafeteria was like two rooms down the hall from him. And every day at the same time, he was having like a small little meltdown and they could not figure out what it was. And then finally, through a little bit more research, what they realized what it was, it was the microwave ovens in the kitchen. It was lunchtime. It was the microwave ovens that were going off and those noises, he could hear them and it was driving him batty. It was too much. And so some ear protection things kind of solved the problem. It's those kinds of things. Lights. Um, a lot of times you see these kids, they'll, they'll crave sensation. They'll, they'll crave stimulation. We call it self-stimming. 
um, and it might be watching the same clip of a video <laughs> over and over and over and over again because it's exciting. I've, I, one little guy, man, he would wear out back in VHS days, <laughs> videotapes. Whew, he would wear them out. He would watch the exact same clip over and over and over and over and over and over. I mean, for hours if we let him. While he flapped and jumped and hopped and laughed and just had a ball. But it was craving all that stimulation. Um, and so you see that too where a certain thing like a vacuum cleaner might just send them into a fit and make them, you know, cower. Another thing they're doing, which would be completely maybe painful to our ears, is very pleasing and, and very loud and, and really crave it. Um, and so, uh, oh, okay, smelling things too, excessive touching or smelling things, that's a big thing too. Um, that's part of the way that they kind of explore objects. Um, and sometimes it's just, again, it's one of those cravings of, that you just see. And so. Um, maybe would smell something that might seem kind of awkward um, or odd to someone who is neurotypical, but for them, it's kind of feeding what their brain is craving, um, is kind of what our theory is, is that they, um, in, in all these things that where it comes to the sensory stuff, it's basically like they're doing what their brain just kind of naturally needs, and they're just doing it without being taught. <laughs> you know, they just, they know what they need. And so, again, it seems maybe a little bit different to us who are more neurotypical and whose brain can process sensory information well, um, but it really does work for them. Um, light, movement, visual movement, um, those things can be, again, both something that is craved, but also something that can be overstimulating. Um, and so sometimes that's where triggers, you know, do come in. Do you know what that you said? Oh, and, uh, do any? Okay. And I, I, it was lost in translation. That's and a big one. I was trying to be funny. Yes. And it was not. I mean, it was just, it was, I was just trying to be simply and play with him, but I, I did it in a snarky way, and, and now I have to be very literal, or I try to be. Yes. Sarcasm is tricky. For people that fall in, in jokes as well, um, it, that, that a lot of times is misunderstood. That's kind of one of the nuances of our language, even though it's verbal that can be really misunderstood. And, and also, they have a hard time, they want to be, a lot of, a lot of my kids, um, I, again, I'm speaking general terms, a lot of my kids, they see that laughter and they, they think it's great, they wanna be funny, and so even trying to tell a joke is so awkward and it just comes out so wrong, and, and then they get a really bad response, and so now they don't understand humor anymore. You know, and, 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 it's, and so humor and sarcasm and especially, too, because what goes with our face a lot of times when we're doing jokes and sarcasm, our face, if you ever watch it in the mirror, it looks real different, and it doesn't always match up. And so that gets interpreted again. It's, that's confusing to me. And I don't know. I know, are, are you trying to dig at me? Are you not trying to dig at me? I don't really know. Most of these guys, especially by the time they hit middle school, they've had people dig at them, and so they know that experience, and, but yet it's hard to discern it when, it when it's happening in those moments, especially because sarcasm and joking can be. So that, that can be, for sure, um, you know, a, a trigger for people. They can be focused beyond. They're not focusing on our facial features a lot. They're focused on the wall, the doorknob, the thing on the, mm -hmm. the sprinkler and the ceiling and that kind of thing. Even though they're engaged, they're not looking at right. that, and we're expecting that. Right. Well, so to pick up on something, yeah, that... So we, they misunderstand us, and we misunderstand them if we don't understand that they have a special issue. We, then we attribute their strange behavior to something else, and there's pride. Right, 
Right. right. And that especially happens um, with, I think, adults, especially in like the workforce. A lot of times there'll be an adult that is there and they come across as a jerk, you know, and that's, they get labeled as just, he's just a jerk, don't even, you know, and the, the truth is they a lot of times can seem like jerks, usually because they're so brutally honest about things. I mean, and just don't suffer fools lightly in that regard either. You know, the, uh, it's, things are very silly to them sometimes that we spend a lot of efforts and energy on. Um, I have one guy, and I'll mention this too, you know, you mentioned Asperger's. It used to be that there were there was pervasive developmental disorder, PDD, there was Asperger's and there was autism. When the new DSM came out, they, they did the research and they said there wasn't enough research to support a discernment between those three as three distinct entities and so we're just gonna call it all now autism spectrum. And then we'll determine level of impairment. So is it requiring Substantial, uh, requiring minimal support, I think, substantial support or very substantial support. That's the levels. And so that's, it's a different language now. And so a lot of times you hear someone say they're on the autism spectrum and probably what they're referring to maybe sometimes is Asperger's rather than someone who's more severe that has very limited language or can only speak a few words or has no language whatsoever. Um, and, and so that that spectrum is a, it's, a, it's a wide spectrum. <laughs> it's, it's, it looks very different from one into the other. Yeah. I was going to say, as a teacher, I when I have kids in my classroom who are Asperger's or they're very high functioning, and they can remember everything they've ever learned, it's amazing. But they can't do analytical thinking for themselves. Mm -hmm. They can't make connections. Mm -hmm. It's very confusing. Yeah. I was going to ask you, where is the science on causes? I know that's been a really touchy Yes, it has. Yeah. Okay. So I took some notes specifically for that. I figured that question was going to come up. So let me let me tell you how are we doing on time. Oh, we're almost done, aren't we? About two minutes, two or three minutes. Okay. Woo! That went faster than I thought. Okay. So to let me solve the causes thing. In two okay. Minutes. All right. Really quick. Okay. All right. So here we. Okay. So the environmental factors that we feel very good about saying are things like parental age. Um, so advanced parental age, low birth weight. Fetal exposure to valproate, which is an anticonvulsant medication, right? So they feel really good putting that stuff in the DSM. Um, they also had a statistic that says that 15% of known cases involve a gene mutation. And I think that this is where science is going to go. The thing with the vaccines, now this is me, this is me, my personal opinion, okay? My personal opinion. So that's all I'm saying on this with the amount of people that I've worked with and the number of anecdotal stories that I've heard where you had a kid who was developmentally just right on target, bam, 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 going, 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 got the MMR, and then a drastic change within two days of development, losing skills, everything happening. I think that um, it has to do with uh, lactose is a good example. If you do not produce lactase, you cannot process lactose which means milk, which is really great, becomes not so great anymore for you. And to me, I think what they're going to find more and more is that there are, it's going to be in the gene world, is that there's going to be certain things that are there, whether it be mutations or changes in the genes, that sets up these guys. Their body cannot process what it needs to process. You're looking at liver detox and looking at gut stuff. And so what happens is environmental things get introduced into their system and their system can't kick it out anymore. Um, Vanderbilt came up with a study and they identified one of the genes that it, its main thing, it was a high correlation with kiddos that had autism, also had this gene mutation. It was liver enzyme production and it was gut 
flora, biodome, all that kind of stuff. That gene was mutated. Well, <laughs> those are two major components of processing, detoxing, getting the gunk out of your system. And so I personally, I think we're going to learn more and more about this is that, that there probably is a genetic component, but then it is certain things that happen that their little bodies just cannot handle. And so there was a guy that he did research on the intestines. He would take biopsies and found active mumps still going in their gut way, 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 way later, which should have been processed out you know, through their system, but couldn't because of maybe, again, just issues with that. So I, I, I think that we're, we're gonna learn more and more about that. And I think it's probably a, 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 a very wide blend of things that are kind of biologically, genetically there, but then there, because when we look at some of the things, the changes in our environment, you, you, you can see the increased, <laughs> you know, diagnosis of um, the incidence rates and, and all these things. So that's, that's the short answer. That's what I think. But um, yeah, so happens four times more often in males than females. And so I think there's probably some, you know, reasons for that too. Um, so I, I think we'll, and luckily I think they are studying that stuff now a lot more. So, yes. Looking at these causes and the genetics, is there a chance that they're going to be able to cure this? I mean, is this something that once it occurs, can it get completely controlled? I know of some moms, um, I know them well, who have done this testing very, very early on, the genetic testing for their children. And the genes that we know so far that we have some big red flags maybe contribute, if they have any of those markers, they do things differently in the environment. They go, um, they do things like dairy-free, gluten-free, no vaccines, no hormones, no fake hormones, cows and horses, not horses, we don't eat horses, um, <laughs> chickens, you know, and so all of those things are very, very different and they have neurotypical kids and, and autism has not shown up. Again, those are anecdotal stories, but I, my, my, my guess is yes, that the more that we understand kind of what is going on, um, and I think for just in general for all of us, it's like our bodies, everybody's body's chemistry is so different and there's certain things that your body's going to love and certain things your body's going to hate. And depending on the hatred <laughs> and the impact of that, what it does is, is going to show up. And so I, I think that there's, I don't know if it would say kind of cures it, maybe just prevents it. You know, we just get smarter about knowing what our bodies need and what they don't need and what's good based on everything inside of me, which is different than yours and yours. That, that's my thought of where hopefully we're, we're heading. Yeah, yeah. We've got to finish up. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to now, uh, thanks, Jen.